You're listening to The Real Enneagram Podcast, a spiritual quest brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. Welcome back to a podcast entitled The Real Enneagram. A spiritual quest. Well, thank you for joining us today. We have a couple of special guests with us today. Uh, first, we have the wonderful Dr. Joseph Howell, as always. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. And myself, his trusted sidekick, Erica Jobes. <laughs> and we have with us Dr. Howell's better half, or other half, Lark Howell. How are you? Hi, I'm fine, Erica. And we have uh, Dr. Drexel Rayford. How are you? I'm doing great. So, as you listeners who know us well know that Drexel is a faculty member with Institute for Conscious Being, and so we've asked him to join us today because we have a great topic. This is February, and it's the month of love. We have our Valentine's Day coming up, so we thought we would have a a topic on love, and Joe told me I needed to open up the podcast with a certain little uh, thing, and so he says that when you get to heaven... Uh, St. Peter is right? <laughs> going to meet us all at the pearly gates, and he's just going to have two questions for us. And the first question is going to be, did you have fun? And the second question is going to be, how well did you love? So today we want to talk about that, uh, the idea of love and how we can, through the spirituality of the Enneagram, learn uh, things that help us along this journey in that uh, area. So, Dr. Howell, why don't you open us up here? Thank you. Well, it is the love month, isn't it? And as a result, we all want to know how to love deeper and better, and also the flip side of that, how we can be loved deeper and better. And, you know, in the Enneagram, we have our false self and we have our true self. The false self is the self of the ego with the the narrative that it makes up. And this narrative is supposedly so the ego can get everything it wants, including love on demand, and also make life go as it wishes to go. But the true self, which is our soul, does not worry about strategizing for love. It merely is itself. And in being itself, the soul shining, it attracts just the people and just the animals it needs in order to fill optimal love. And so the Enneagram is really a map from the self-preoccupied ego that trying to get love for itself and the soul who is interested in giving love more than in getting it but in that is able to receive abundance of love for itself very good okay so the doctor uh what do you have to say drexel (laughs) yeah i um I think of love and, you know, when, I, when you talk about how much we, we desire to have love and what Joe was saying about ego, I start thinking of the way the uh, uh, New Testament talks about love. And, you know, this, this might 
get a little geeky, but nevertheless, you know, three basic words for love mm -hmm. that are used, and the most common one is uh, philios, but agape and eros are the two others, and of course, eros is the kind of love that really is the love that you're talking about when you were talking about the ego getting, and eros is uh, where we get our word erotic, and it's not, a lot of times we associate the word erotic with negative connotations, you know, pornography or sexually explicit cinema or something like that. But without erotic love, the human race wouldn't exist. You know, it's, it's what uh, draws you together physically. But then you've got phylos, or, and that's where we get the word, you know, Philadelphia, you know, brotherly love. And phylos is probably the next level it's kind of interesting that the eros kind of corresponds with the gut, the phylos corresponding with the head, and the agape with the heart, or encompassing. I, and I'm just thinking how there's a tripartite, triune way of looking at love. The three centers of the Enneagram. Yes, the three centers of the Enneagram. Thank you very much. But, you know, we, we, we need that physical love to pull together, but then the phylos, it's a, that contractual love that ensures that there's a commitment, that you do A, then I'll respond with the appropriate B, and then you respond with the appropriate C, and I with appropriate D, that way the response. But what happens when I do A and you don't do B? <laughs> then I am really upset. And what do I do then? Well, if I don't have something greater than simply contractual love, agape, then things fall apart. There's pain. There's more suffering. And a lot of people operate out of that kind of mentality. Is, uh, you know, I have done this, therefore you do that. And you didn't live up to your side of the contract, therefore I'm out of here. Yeah. And there's no room for forgiveness or grace in that kind of love. And in our society, you know, there's no room for grace or love when you draw up a contract for a house, for instance, or the insurance rates on a credit card. But you know that that kind of transaction is not what makes for a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. There has to be something bigger, and that's where agape comes in. It's the kind that allows for grace, for forgiveness, and allows for new contracts to be written or renewed, mm -hmm. which then opens it up for the erotic to continue. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's all connected. And so without the agape umbrelling it, and I don't know why I'm motioning so much with my hands because nobody can see it, but anyway, if you can imagine an umbrella, that's the agape. Or if you imagine the big, huge sphere and then phylos inside of that and eros there in mm -hmm. the middle. Mm -hmm. Well, let's break that down a little bit because as I was listening to you talk, Drexel, and thinking about the ego's response to love in general, to relationships, and because we have all are in relationships, you know, we have children that we're in relationship with, mm -hmm. we have significant others, spouses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, co-workers, friendships, and I think a lot of times those relationships it can be very disappointing. And I think our egos react to these different relationships and often we block love ourselves. We don't even realize that we are causing our own suffering, that our ego can do that. Joe, for example, if we were to go around the Enneagram, how would each of the ego types, how might they block love? 
Can you do that for us? Sure. Um, ego type one would block love by monitoring and judging their beloved. That, as Drexel said, would be a deal breaker because a beloved doesn't need to be judged but accepted totally. Number two, or ego type two, would block love by being so insensitive to their own needs that they would not be able to receive from their beloved. And so it goes on around to three would block love simply by denying that their passion of love and that that it is their works or their accomplishments that are going to make them lovable, not just who they are. And so they might have the false belief that they're only loved if they accomplish these things. Right. That's what their false self believes. Mm -hmm. Ego number four would block their own love by focusing on their defects and what's wrong with them and the fact that they're not sure about their own authenticity. And therefore, they shrink away from being loved totally. And they're particular about who they will let in because of the specialness there. But sometimes they let in people only for a short time, and they're not able to deliver an authentic reciprocal relationship. Fives block love simply by being a hermit in a cave, so preoccupied with information and what they know that they live in headspace and don't involve the emotions and the body in ways that make them out there, out of their cave, and able to attract and give to other relationships. Sixes, of course, are scared and Kind of like the fours, they think they're defective, but theirs is more like they are deviant because they don't meet certain standards or they don't fill the bill or they aren't of the quality that that their beloved would need to have. So they get paralyzed in fear and wrap themselves in a blanket of anxiety that doesn't soothe them and that creates anxiety for the beloved who is trying to get close to them. Mm-hmm. Number sevens block love simply by checking out, not being there, being so preoccupied with the next thing that's going to happen, the next place to go, or the next way to avoid pain, or the next uh, indulgence or happy indulgence that they would like to have, that the beloved is seen as part of all that, part of overindulgence, part of avoiding pain, and that kind of a relationship is unsustainable because that beloved's going to have pain. And if the person who is the seven avoids the pain of their beloved, that's another deal breaker. Mm -hmm. Of course, that begins with the seven avoiding their own pain, okay? 
And then we get to eight, and the way eights shut down on getting the love that they need and want and that they can give is by being a powerhouse that, you know, controls everything, including the beloved, in terms of possessing that person and sort of directing where that person will go and what they'll do. And a beloved who wants to be loved in their own right will sooner or later get the message that what they are is just an object for the eight and not a real person that the eight in their lust has maybe devoured them and they unless they like to be devoured that will not be sustainable for them either and then the nines whose holy idea is holy love block their love by self-deprecating and also debasing themselves they want so badly to be loved and think that the answer to it is to avoid conflict and to put themselves down so that the beloved will not be threatened by them and that the beloved will approach them. And real beloveds don't want somebody who doesn't think well of themselves and keeps putting themselves down, doesn't take up for themselves, doesn't come into their own. And there again, that's a deal breaker unless that beloved wants to do therapy all the time with somebody who states that they're really pitiful, okay? (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And don't pay attention to me because I don't matter is what the unhealthy nines say. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating that our egos, I mean, all of us have ways that we block love from other people in ways that our egos love others or think that they're loving others, but it's pushing them away or actually causing problems in the relationships. Did what Dr. Howell said, I know, Drexel, you identify as an egotype four. Did that resonate with you about how the four can block love? It did resonate with me. You know, uh, Joe had was having to summarize uh, pain in very, very broad stripes, which is what we always do when we teach this, and there are nuances to it. And the way I would, I would talk, well, a four-blocking love, one of the things I do when my ego is there is I begin to pity myself. And in pitying myself, I start getting very nostalgic. I start second-guessing myself. And that's part of the self-doubt that you talk about, the I'm not worthy. I didn't make a good decision back then. And, and I wonder if, if I'd been smarter, I might not have even gotten into this relationship. Mm-hmm. And I might not express that explicitly. But that self-deprecation that you were talking about still conveys it's part of the spirit of the relationship. When you start thinking that, it is, it's something that affects the relationship between me and Vicki, who mm-hmm. my wife, Vicki. And I'm lucky enough to have somebody. She's a one, and she points it out. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I have to trust her on that. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's very much, yeah, I resonate with that. Do you find uh, the word defective ever is something that you think about yourself? I think uh, defective hasn't come to mind, but it's a synonym, a failure. A failure, uh, someone who 
doesn't quite measure up. I remember when I was in grad school, I was absolutely certain I was the only one out of my class that they had made a mistake about. That I was the only one that my professors were probably thinking, we shouldn't have let him in. <laughs> That would cross my mind spontaneously when I was in a seminar and, and somebody would make a brilliant comment, you know, and I would say something and, I, and nobody would gasp with amazement at my insight. Then I would think, oh, they think I'm stupid. Yeah. That's how it operationalized. Mm-hmm. You know, it would come up right there. So I think, yeah, defect is a good word for it. But uh, I've always thought in terms of failure, personal failure, you know, not measuring. I was thinking about the four, since we have you here, that something is missing in me. And because of the tragic past, I don't have what I need Mm -hmm. to be an authentic whole person. Yeah, something isn't there. Uh, I notice that in my songwriting is real easy for me to to write nostalgic songs about how, oh, it was so bad, and oh, it hurt. But if I could only get back there, it would be beautiful. You know, it's never present. It's not the present. It's, it's not, you know, this is a wonderful place to be, and, and I'm blessed. You're more and more like that, though, as I've come to know you over the last five or six years. You have seemed to have gotten much lighter, much more comfortable with yourself. Well, I, you know, that's, uh, it was the last few years that I've uh, gotten involved with ICB, so that's why. <laughs> and, and I only say that half in jest because being able to be intentional about how I think about myself, about being able to put that pause in between the autopilot thoughts and to stop say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have these bad habits, these, you know, what AA calls stinking thinking. You know, I, these, these things happen to me, and this is part of it. This is the recurring thing. And just let it go. For heaven's sakes, look around you. Were you really happier back then? Well, no, I wasn't. You know, if I objectively look at it, I wasn't any happier then. In fact, I was less happy. So it's bringing all of those feelings into perspective. Is that what you mean by being objective? Not letting the feelings lead you around and thinking things through? Yeah, that's another good way of putting it. I remember you using that phrase at at the last intensive, as a matter of fact. You used the phrase about how fours, and and really it's it's common, I think, to twos and threes as well, maybe to a lesser extent, but get let on a leash by their feelings. They don't have feelings, feelings have them. Mm -hmm. Without being conscious about it, without being intentional, when you're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that happens. And, and you know, the, the thing that's common, I think, to everybody and, you know, all the way around the Enneagram is when the ego is, is there, there is less of the holy detachment mm-hmm. that allows a person to put in the space. And it's interesting that in our sanctuaries, we create space. You know, the big cathedrals, they created space. And back in the primitive humans, they would go into caves where there was this big, huge space that they could be in. And it was almost like saying, look, what you need to do is you need to put space into your thinking because the thinking is limited and the real world is a lot bigger than your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, you access that aspect of yourself, which is nonverbal. And that nonverbal part of yourself, that transverbal, I should say, then can relate 
and that gives more vitality to your soul so that it can actually exist in that reality, which is beyond verbiage. Mm -hmm. And you know it's real, but you never can explain it to anybody. You know, it's because it's bigger than words. And to be open to that, when you do that, and I think this is where it connects with love and with all these dynamics that Joe just, you know, Joe didn't know you were going to ask him that. (laughs) And, you know, I'm always impressed with how, how Joe can answer so well. And what was common in that as I was listening was that putting that space in there is essential to all of us. No matter what our ego styles are, Mm -hmm. we need to put that space in there to create that pause. That's the humility. That's the devotion which allows that bigger part of ourselves to exist. And then when that happens, we have a commonality, we have a connection point, and that's where love happens. Mm -hmm. But in that space, possibly, the idea of bringing awareness to what's happening, you know, and we think about this in terms of like general life, you know, we use big Enneagram words or spiritual words, but in terms of living real life, how does one bring awareness to the traps that our egos tend us toward and allow us the space to bring awareness to that so that we can let soul shine through and live out our lives a little bit differently? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that when we feel angst, that is a red flag of sorts to, like you said, Drexel, to take pause, to bring awareness to the traps of the ego. I think about Joe talking about the eights objectifying their love, the mm-hmm. person that they love. Mm-hmm. Well, why do we do that? Is it because we're a bunch of tyrants? No, it's because we are so afraid of being vulnerable and really being truthful about how much we deeply love that person. So it's easy to objectify the relationship. It takes the vulnerability out of it and the feelings out of it. And now you can't hurt me because you're just an object. And so in my life, Mm -hmm. in my relationships, when I feel that angst, the next thing that I do when I'm living a conscious life and living out of soul is to recognize that and what's happening there is I'm starting to feel vulnerable. Hmm. Does this person love me? You know, or am I lovable? Or I love them so much, what if something happens? So then the next thing I do as an eight, because I have to learn to get in touch with my feelings, is to stay with that feeling. You know, not every number has to do that, but I do. And just to feel the feeling of deep love, to feel the feeling of being vulnerable, to accept that as part of who I am, and uh, to be kind to myself and to love myself through that, knowing that I am deeply loved and deeply held by the divine, no matter what I do, no matter what they do. And then that brings a sense of groundedness and a sense of peace back into the picture. And where there's peace, that's usually some sort of an antidote for the angst that I began with. I know every number has a similar, a similar road there from the initial angst that the ego causes us 
through that path to coming back to awareness and then knowing that we're deeply loved. Lark, did any of this resonate with you? No, not at all. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, I really don't think I have anything to say because y'all have all said everything so beautifully. But being an Ego 7, the love that I hope for from people is a perfectionistic type of love. I expect the relationship to be perfect and for people to love me in the way that I want them to love me. And my ego has created that. And so from a Seven's point of view, I have to remember that there is a, a holy perfection, and that is what I have to hold on to when I'm thinking about my relationship with other people. It can't be perfect, because when I spiral down and wishing that every relationship is perfect, that's my disintegration, and it can't be that way. And so, for me, that ego mind of mine creates this perfect relationship, and then when it's not like that, then that's when my hopes and dreams are dashed because it's not the way I imagined it that was going to be. And I imagine as an ego type seven, you're imagining kind of a blissful relationship. Oh, yeah. Because if it's not, then it's painful. (laughs) So the avoidance of pain is what I'm trying to do at all costs. And if that relationship isn't the way I've imagined it or that I've wished for it to be, then that lack of perfection is is terrible. Mm -hmm. And then that's when the pain comes in. Mm -hmm. What have you done in your life, Lark, to wake up to that so that you can live out your relationships differently? I think I've had to learn to realize that life is not perfect and that when something is painful, to sit with that pain and to realize that God's love will heal that pain and will help that pain to go away, but acknowledging that it's there and sitting with it is the challenge of a seven. Well, I know you really well because we spend a lot of time together, much to your dismay. <laughs> um, but my delight. Uh, but I remember when my mother died. And you came to the little celebration of life thing or whatever. And you said something to me that nobody else said. Now I say it to other people who have loss. You said to me, Erica, you're never going to be the same. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. This isn't okay. Losing your mom is one of the worst things ever. You're never going to be the same. But this is what I promise you. God will fill that place Mm -hmm. with love Mm -hmm. and be open and accepting of that. And I remember thinking it was such a relief for somebody to say, this isn't okay. Yeah, And it came from a seven of all people Mm -hmm. to say, this is going to be painful. It's going to be extremely painful, but that God will fill that place with love again. Mm -hmm. And that has absolutely been true. No one will ever fill my mother's shoes. But I can honestly say that my life is full of love. So when I remember her, it isn't as painful because I am surrounded by love, mostly because I've allowed that to happen. I think as if I were still in my ego fixation as an eight, I likely would not have allowed that to happen, and I'd be in a lot more pain as a result. So anything? Anything? Anybody else? Well, everybody's like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and Lark prefaced all that wisdom by saying she didn't have anything to add. <laughs> yeah, that's usually, usually the case. So, 
Well, as always, it's a joy being with you guys and and doing this podcast with you. And I just want to say thank you for being here with us today. We love you. Oh, thank Thank you. you. Thank you. I am love. See, I told you. That's right. (laughs) So, and I'm so, so thankful for that. But to our listeners, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at therealenneagram at gmail.com. You can also find us at theicb.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to being with you again next time. That wraps up another episode of The Real Enneagram, brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. If you're interested in furthering these conversations, please reach out to us through our Instagram at The Real Enneagram. Or if you're interested in our upcoming trainings or other resources, please visit our website, www.instituteforconsciousbeing.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.